Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are just a week away from Resurrection Sunday. This morning on the church calendar is Palm Sunday. And so it's uh, probably appropriate that this morning we are talking about the death of Christ and what it accomplished. Next week we'll be talking about the resurrection of Christ. But of course our homecoming Plans and festivities have all been put on hold because of the coronavirus. And here's my plan. Here's what I'm thinking. Since very, very early in GCA's inception, back when we were still in my house, in my living room, we decided that we were going to have communion once a year because I was convinced that that's what the Bible teaches. The Lord's Supper is part of Passover. And that's kind of an inescapable reality. Passover happens once a year. That just seems obvious to me. So that has been our custom from the beginning. But then this year, it's going to be more difficult since we're not able to gather here for Resurrection Sunday which is typically when we have our annual communion. I was talking to Micah the other day, and I pointed out that in the book of Numbers, there is a contingency plan that God himself spells out for Passover and Passover only. It is the only feast where this sort of contingency actually exists. And the contingency was that some men came to Moses and said that they were unclean because of a dead body. They wanted to know what they could do in order to still honor God by keeping the Passover. Moses goes to God and comes back with the instruction that if you were unclean or on a distant trip so that you couldn't keep the Passover on the first month, on the 14th day, that you could do it the next month, the second month of the year on the 14th day. In other words, God understands contingencies. God understands that sometimes things happen that are beyond your control. Well, I would say the coronavirus is beyond our control. So we collectively, and I mean Micah and I when I speak of us collectively, So Micah and I decided that our next communion service is going to occur on the first Sunday that we are all allowed to be back here at GCA collectively. That way we all have something to look forward to and we will once again be in actual communion together as a congregation here in the building and we will all commune with God to celebrate the fact that we are all together again. So that is our plan. 
we are continuing to talk this morning about Christ's death and what did Christ's death actually accomplish. Last week, if you recall, we determined that there were eight things that Christ actually accomplished on the cross. The Bible spells out the eight things that Jesus accomplished. He was the final substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He was the propitiation that satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the redemption price to purchase guilty sinners. He was the ransom price that actually was paid. He made reconciliation between God and men. He justified guilty sinners, satisfying God's holy justice. He sanctified those people or set them apart as holy. And finally, he perfected forever those whom he bought and justified and sanctified. And those things are all done. When Christ said to Telestai, it is finished, those things were finished. Those things were actually accomplished by the death of Christ on the cross. And so we ask the question, could Christ have possibly died for everybody in the whole world without particularity or distinction? Is that even possible given the eight things that Christ actually accomplished on the cross? Because if he actually accomplished those eight things on behalf of everybody who ever lived without particularity or distinction, then he actually accomplished their completion, their perfection, their sanctification, their justification, their complete redemption, and the price paid for sin was paid for everybody who ever lived. Therefore, it is impossible to conclude that anybody could be lost. Universal atonement invariably leads, inextricably leads to universal salvation. There's no other way that you can follow the logic of it without concluding that if Jesus died for everybody's sins and did those eight things for absolutely everybody, then absolutely everybody has to be saved. And yet, if that is the rule, all you have to do is find one exception to the rule, and it's no longer a rule. And we find Christ declaring that certain people, like Judas, was a son of perdition from the beginning, or he said, speaking to the Pharisees, that they were children of hell, that they crossed land and sea to make one proselyte. When they had made that convert, they made them twice the child of hell that they were. And so when you see that kind of language of rejection by God, that language of outer darkness, that language of hell, that language of judgment, all of that proves that then some people simply are not saved. And if some people are not saved, then how do you explain universal atonement? Do you see the conundrum? So the only other option is that Jesus must have died for particular people. And since the entirety of humankind is all fallen into sin and depravity, and since we have already established that God 
chose some people before the foundation of the world, since he already elected people, then it is only logical, it is only rational, that when Christ came and paid the price of his own blood, that he did that in order to purchase those particular people that God had already chosen since before the foundation of the world. Those names that are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those are the people for whom Christ died, guaranteeing their eternal salvation. So the blood of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, we would argue, is fully effective. It utterly, completely did what God sent Christ to earth to accomplish. And when he said it's accomplished, he meant it's accomplished. It's actually done. I have actually achieved what all of the prophets have prophesied. I have actually achieved the salvation of God's people. I have actually accomplished the separating of God's people and the guarantee of their eternal security through my singular sacrifice. So we say it is fully, utterly effective. Jesus actually saved people when he died. It's just that he didn't die for everyone. Now, that is not just theology that was created out of whole cloth at the Synod of Dort. That's not just something that John Calvin dreamed up one day after a bad night's sleep. That's not just something that we have agreed on because we want to be different from everybody else. That's actually the language of the Bible. Turn to Acts 20 for a moment. We are particularly going to be looking at verse 28. That's the verse that we want to center in on. Paul is giving final instructions to people as he is leaving Ephesus. And he says, starting at verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So when Christ shed his own blood, who did he shed his blood for? Who was he purchasing with his blood? When he made himself a ransom, when he paid the redemption price, who did he believe he was purchasing? The church. Therefore, I say again, This is not a doctrine that we are just making up in order to be contrary to the Arminian doctrine. In Ephesians 5, you can turn there if you want. In Ephesians 5, we're going to look at verse 25, which is actually about marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives. And yet Paul is so 
thoroughly convinced of this doctrine of Christ's particularity that even when talking about husbands and wives, he can't help but mention the particularity of the finished work of Christ. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this instance, Paul is saying, use Christ as your example. Christ sacrificed himself. He gave himself for the church, so then husbands ought to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. But that whole analogy is based on the reality that Christ gave himself up for the church. He didn't give himself up for everybody. He didn't give himself up for unbelievers. He didn't give himself up for the whole world just in case somebody would come along later and validate the work that he did. He actually died on purpose to accomplish what he was sent here to do, and what he was sent to do was to give his life for the church, for the elect, for the ones that God gave him. He also says, very particularly, that he died for his friends. That's John 15. We're going to read John 15, starting at verse 12, and read through verse 15. Jesus speaking says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things which I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So when Christ says there's no greater love than this, but that a man lay down his life for his friends, was he speaking in particular? Well, yes, he was, because then he defined who his friends were. His friends are those who he tells about his father, those that he gives the words, the instructions of his father. Those are the ones that he refers to as his friends. And he laid down his life for his friends. So far, we have seen that Christ laid down his life for the church. And now we see Jesus saying, I lay down my life for my friends. But it also says that he died for his people in particularity. Matthew 1.21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so who are his people? Is that everybody who ever lived without particularity? Or is that particular people? Well, since Jesus said that all that the Father gives him will come to him, then I'm going to argue that those people the Father gave to the Son are the very people that he saved from their sins. Because after all, they are his people. They're his people because God gave them to him. Seems kind of logical to me. Back in the book of John, starting at chapter 17, verse 5, and I'm going to read through to verse 10. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays with particularity. 
and says that he was praying for those particular people that God gave him, that he was not praying for the world. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to everybody on the planet who ever lived without any kind of distinction or particularity. What it says is, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. So everybody on the planet collectively is referred to as the world. But then there are those people who were taken out of the world and given to Christ, given to Christ by God. And then Christ revealed God to those people. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Do you understand the way Christ just set up the relationship? He spoke of the world and those people that God gave to him. He revealed God to those people God gave to him. And even in his high priestly prayer, he said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you gave me. Now, I can't avoid that that's particularity. I can't avoid the fact that that is Jesus making a distinction between the world and those that God gave him. In fact, Jesus also said in talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit that the world, the unbelieving world, was not going to be able to receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wasn't going to give them the Holy Spirit. And what would be the benefits of receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, for one, that would bring you to faith in Christ. So if Christ doesn't give you the Holy Spirit, are you going to come to faith in Christ? Well, no. Therefore, you're not going to be saved. That's kind of the unavoidable result. But the same way that salvation begins with something that Christ did for you because you couldn't do it yourself, in the same way, the lack of salvation is a result of God himself not choosing you, Christ himself not dying for you, and the Holy Spirit not inhabiting you. The same way that salvation is a result of Father, Son, and Spirit, as God chose and then gave particular people to Christ, and then Christ died to save those people, and then the Holy Spirit was given to those people to seal them for the day of their redemption, in the very same way, the lack of salvation is the lack of God choosing or Christ dying or the Holy Spirit inhabiting you.
in John 14, starting at verse 16, we read, this is Jesus talking to his apostles, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That's not unimportant, by the way. Because in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God come on people like King Saul. So much so that people even asked about Saul. They said, is Saul now among the prophets? Is he one of the sons of the prophets? Because the Spirit came on him and he prophesied, but then the Spirit of God left him. And so whenever Jesus would talk about, speak about the Holy Spirit and the promise of the coming Spirit, there was the natural assumption, because the only understanding anybody had was what was written in the Old Testament, and so they would naturally assume that the Spirit would come upon you, but that could be temporary, that he might leave again, because after all, they had examples from the Scriptures of that very thing happening. And yet Jesus said, this time, the Spirit I'm going to send to you is going to be with you and in you, and he's going to inhabit you forever. Well, that was distinctly different. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world, remember we've already identified the world, whom the world cannot receive. That's one of Jesus' many cannot statements. There are things that human beings simply cannot do. They cannot save themselves. They cannot come to faith. They cannot make Jesus Lord and Savior. They cannot do anything for their own eternal welfare and spiritual longevity. They can't do anything for themselves without Christ. Christ says, I'm the vine. Without me, you can do nothing. So I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him. It does not know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So unlike the Old Testament examples of the spirit being on someone and then departing, Christ says he'll be with you forever because he'll abide with you and be in you. But the world, importantly, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. So let's review real quickly. The world can't receive the Spirit, and Jesus isn't praying for the world. Where does that leave the world? That leaves the world in desperate states. The world who cannot receive the Holy Spirit, the world whom Jesus did not pray for, the world that cannot please God in their flesh, and because their flesh isn't even able to do the law, which would be the beginning of demonstrating some kind of fear and reverence for God. You can't do that because your flesh and the law are at constant enmity with each other. The world whom God turns over to a strong delusion so that they're going to believe a lie and going to be condemned. That's the distinction that Jesus makes between the world and those that God gave him. Well, that, if I'm not beating this horse to death, is limited. 
that's particular. And so we declare plainly, Christ died as a substitute for the elect only. This is not just a logical succession of thought and inventive theology or creative doctrine that somebody dreamed up at some point in the past. It sounds foreign to the ears of the modern Christian because the modern Christian has been raised on the theology that I was raised with. I was raised with a very shallow theology overall, but one thing I knew for sure was that Jesus on the cross was dying for everybody. So much so, I was told that when they nailed him to the cross, his arms were wide open so that he could embrace the whole world. You hear that all the time. Christ died for the world. Which, by the way, is also biblical language. But you have to understand that world used in the Bible, that word cosmos, is often used with distinction in order to demonstrate that it's not just Jews that the Jewish Messiah will be saving, but it's people of every kindred and tribe and nation on the whole planet. Therefore, it's a salvation for the world and not just for Jews alone. Because that language of Christ dying for the world has become non-distinct, it's become dumbed down, then boys like me are raised with the theology of Jesus died for everybody. And if he died for everybody and yet not everybody is saved, then who makes the difference? Who decides? We're back to that. Who makes the difference? And I was told I made the difference. I was told I had to choose. I was told that I had to exercise faith in Christ. I was told that I needed to make Jesus Lord and Savior. I was told that I make the difference. Jesus made salvation available to everybody. But then I had to do something to activate that salvation. If Christ actually died as a substitute for the elect only, the result of it can only be that the elect are already viewed by God as having been purchased, having been reconciled. They are personally innocent. They are holy and they are complete in Christ. In God's eyes, that's you. In God's eyes, through the finished work of Christ, you're reconciled, you're innocent, you're holy, you're complete because of what Christ did. And so you can never again be tried for your sin because God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west and those sins will be remembered no more. That's Psalm 103.4. God has removed your sin from you, therefore you can't be tried for your sins as a result of Christ dying for particular people and utterly purchasing, reconciling, making them personally innocent, holy, making them complete in Christ. I'm beating this language to death because I really want to drive it into your brain so that you understand what Christ actually accomplished because this will actually make you love Christ more. Amen. The demonstration of the love of God and the love of Christ 
is that God sent his son into the world in order to die for the people that God was giving to Christ, the end result being that we're going to end up in heaven to the glory of Christ so that we are examples, so that we are trophies of the grace of God, so that for all of eternity we stand before Christ worshiping and glorifying him to his glory. And so the entire enterprise from beginning to end is all to his glory. And yet, the theology that I was raised with was very much to my glory. It was very much to mankind's glory because Christ died trying to save people, making salvation available but he didn't actually save anybody. He didn't finish the salvation of anybody. Therefore, people had to activate that and finish the work that Christ began. As I said last week, I heard a preacher one time say, Jesus did everything he could do. I mean, what kind of language is that? Jesus actually did everything he meant to do. Jesus actually accomplished everything God sent him to the planet to accomplish, and therefore he actually saved people to his glory. But if he's waiting around for you to complete what he started, well, then you get some of the glory. It's a shared glory. It's a shared enterprise. He did his part. You do your part. And maybe, just maybe, it'll all work out okay. Yes, Steve? I distinctly remember as a teenager, the first time that I encountered the doctrines of grace, the thought crossing my mind, if that is true, I don't get any credit. And it was a while before I realized I don't get any credit. You don't get any credit. The rug gets pulled out from under you utterly and completely. But then, as I said, if you know that that's your condition, if you know that there was just nothing you could do, that it was all up to him, everything that God done had to be done by him, well, then how much are you going to end up loving and worshiping him? Because he saved you. And again, never neglect that language of saved. I mean, if you're drowning, forget drowning. If you've drowned, if you're laying at the bottom of the sea, waiting around to be fish food, and somebody brings you up from the depths and then breathes life into you, they saved you. You didn't do anything. Your participation was drowning, dying, and becoming fish food. What the person did who saved you was everything because you couldn't do anything. So how much are you going to appreciate that person? My best friend. My best friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Sometimes those lyrics are right on. Sometimes, eh, but sometimes, right there. So all of our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, cast behind God's back into the sea of forgetfulness, and God's not going to pour out his wrath for sin on the elect because he already poured out his wrath for sin on his son in their place. 
So then Hebrews 9.12 can say, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained, that means done deal, having already accomplished, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption. The price is paid eternally. That's why he didn't have to pay it again and again and again. That's why he didn't have to repeatedly kill himself, says the writer of Hebrews. Because once and for all, it is a finished work. He did it. Those people are perfected forever, the people that he has sanctified. And that finished work obtained for us an eternal buying out from the slave market of sin. How secure are we? Especially because we're not able to do any part of it ourselves. But it's a good thing to also recognize that it's not required of us to do anything. And because he did it all and saved us and eternally redeemed us, then we are securely in his hands and he and we are securely in God's hands and no one can remove us from God's hand or Christ's hand. We're just about as saved as we could possibly be. Amen. So the logical succession of these doctrines that we've been looking at have to lead us to conclude that Christ simply could not die for all of humanity. If, as we've concluded so far, God elected certain individuals before the foundation of the world and he withheld that mercy from others, then he would not have sent his son to the world intending to pardon those that he positively foreknew he was not going to save. Do you understand that? Would God have sent Christ into the world to pay the redemption price to pardon those who God knew were going to be eternally lost? If God had already made the determination of who was going to be saved and who was going to be judged, why would he send his son into the world to pay the price of pardon for people who were eternally lost? Lorraine Bettner put it this way, Last week, I mentioned to you that I had a quote from Lorraine Bettner that I really liked in his book on the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, which was, by the way, one of the books that really convinced me of the doctrines of grace and particularly limited atonement. But it's a big, thick, hard-to-read tome. And so that's part of what inspired me to write the manuscript that became the book By Grace Alone. My goal was for By Grace Alone to be easily accessible to people who needed to know this information. And it's difficult to hand somebody Lorraine Bettner's Reformed Doctrine of Predestination book. I mean, they could use it as a doorstop, but they're not likely to sit down and read it in an evening. It's, it's heavy theological reading. And so in that book, he said, to represent God as earnestly striving to do what he knows he will not do is to represent God as acting foolishly. That's a great quote because God did not try to do what he knew he wasn't going to do. If he wrote down names, 
in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, then he knew who the saved were. So then he did not send his son to pay the redemptive price for those people who he knew were not in the book. Otherwise, you've created a foolish God. So this doctrine is important to our overall theology, our overall understanding of who God is and what God is like and how God acts. If you know that he chose you since before the foundation of the world and that he placed you in Christ and then Christ paid the price to redeem you forever, well, then you can glorify that God because you understand what that God actually did, what his character is, what his determination before the foundation of the world was. In fact, these grand and great mysteries have been opened up to you. And by the Holy Spirit, they're confirmed to you in your heart, in your mind. And the world just can't know these things, which is why sometimes we'll try to tell people this stuff. We'll try to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, and they just don't get it. They just utterly reject it. And the reason that they reject it is because they can't get it. So I think we can also conclude that the Arminian limitation, remember last week we talked about the difference between our limitation and their limitation? I said we limit the atoning work in its scope. It's fully effective, but it's not for everybody. Whereas the Arminian will limit it in its effectiveness. They'll say it's for everybody, but it's not effective for anybody until they make it effective. So the real difference is between whether Jesus actually saves or whether he was just trying to save, whether he was just making salvation available. But that notion of Christ dying for everybody, if you just make it effective, is utterly missing from the Bible. There is no scriptural support for that idea. And yet I hope I've shown you over the last two weeks that there's a whole lot of scripture on which we are basing the teaching that Christ died in particular for those people that God gave him since before the foundation of the world. That's all biblical language. And that the salvation that Christ accomplished was a full, complete, eternal redemption, perfecting forever the people that he sanctified and justified. That is biblical language. But the language of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life in order to get somebody to listen to you. And then you say, Jesus died for everybody, and you just have to make a decision for him. That language is utterly missing from the Bible completely. So where does that come from? Well, it comes from people liking people. It comes from people thinking too highly of themselves. And thinking, my free will must have some place, some action, some participation in my salvation. And the only way that I can retain the notion of my free will is to say that Christ died for everybody, and then I exercise my free will in order to actually be saved. 
but of course the Bible doesn't talk about man's free will anywhere nor does the Bible say that you have to exercise or activate your free will in order to make the atoning work of Christ effective on your behalf that language is utterly not in the Bible have I made that clear enough yet it's just not biblical it's attractive because it sounds fair it sounds like everybody's gonna get a fair shot it sounds like human beings those wonderful human beings those precious lovable human beings those great little human beings that God loves so much those irrepressible little oh you little human beings those human beings want to believe that even their eternity is up to them and so they have developed theologies that would allow for their own decision-making to play some part in their eternal salvation but once you come to grips with who God is and who we are that's why you have to begin with men being totally depraved once you start with that there can't be anything within people that would make God react to them choose them save them instead it has to be entirely God's enterprise from beginning to end not only so that he gets all the glory but because that's the way that the Bible says it therefore if we're saying biblical things if we're speaking God's words after him if we're thinking God's thoughts after him then we can't come to any other conclusion then God in order to have all the glory and in order to be the sovereign who's in charge of everything is also in charge of who's going to wind up in his glory for the rest of eternity that's God and if you don't like it if it doesn't seem fair if that doesn't seem right to you who are you that's the answer Paul gives he presupposed people would say to him you will say to me then how does he yet find fault seeing as how no one has resisted his will and Paul's answer is who are you to answer against God in other words God is sovereign God does whatever he wants and he's told you what he's doing he's already written it in the Bible he's already spelled it out and human beings just don't like it and so they come up with unbiblical sub-biblical contra-biblical ideas so that they can say no 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 me it has to start and end with me I have to be involved in some way I have to be the deciding factor in my salvation but then I would say you have every right to glorify yourself because after all you and God cooperatively got you saved but the truth is God gets all the glory because God saves and then because God can do whatever he wants with what is his and because our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases because that's the only God that's in the Bible and existing anywhere in the universe because that's God he's going to do what he wants to do and even if you don't like it there's nothing you can do about it because he's God and you're not you're dust you're a vapor you're here for a little while and then you're gone and you have no influence on the eternal mind of a completely self-existent God who does whatever he pleases and if that's the case and he chose you oh thank God oh 
don't get on your face. Bow down before that God. Praise and worship that God. Sing to that God. Express your praise to that God in every way you can think of. Because he was under no obligation to you. And yet he saved you for his own glory. To make you trophies of glory. It just doesn't get better than that. I don't know why people object so much Well, I do. It's because human beings are egocentric, which is all part of their sinfulness and their depravity and their self-involvement. But the truth is, if you can ever get a hold of this doctrine, if you can ever get a hold of this God, the actual God of the Bible, if you can ever understand what God actually did in order to guarantee you eternal redemption and presence with him in eternity, if you can ever get a hold of that, you just won't have a problem Worshipping that God. That's right. So, here's my conclusion then of this particular doctrine. You thought I meant conclusion of the morning. You're so wrong. See, I'm standing here at the pulpit speaking to a skeleton crew here at GCA on a Sunday morning. And so really, I can stand here as long as I want. We're logically, scripturally backed into a corner. And I like it when that happens. I like it when the Bible paints me into a corner where there's no escaping the truth. You just have to say, well, that's the truth. There's there's no getting away from it. Only one of these two statements is true. This is the difference between the Arminian and the Calvinistic contingents back at the Synod of Dort, and it's still true today. It is still as much an argument within the church world today. One of these two statements is true. Christ paid the sin debt in full and actually redeemed, justified, and perfected those people for whom he died, or Christ removed the burden of sin, making salvation possible, but he did not actually accomplish anyone's salvation. Individual men must activate this redemption by believing, choosing, or by acts of the will. Those are the two sides of the argument. It's one or the other, and it can't be both. If statement one is true, then Christ could not have died for every single person without exception. He must have died for the particular elect. That's the only way it comes out. Meanwhile, if statement two is correct, then the volition of the individual man is the deciding factor that establishes or activates Christ's atoning work. The Bible, not our opinion, not the Synod of Dort, not wise theologians with long beards who are long dead, but the Bible itself tells us Statement one is true. Christ paid the sin debt in full and actually redeemed, justified, and perfected those people for whom he died because those were the people that God gave him. So I hope over the last couple of Sundays as we've looked at this doctrine that you've been convinced of it not because the sin had said it, not because it's intellectually stimulating or because you like knowing things that maybe other people don't know. I hope you understand that that's what the Bible says. So what should 
the result of this be? The result of it is, as I've stated a couple times, the end result is that Christ gets all the glory. And that's what the Bible says. That's the intention for why Christ came to the planet and did what he did. Colossians 1, starting to read at verse 14, says that. In whom? In Christ. We have redemption through his blood. That's everything we've been talking about for the last two weeks. Through the blood of Christ, we actually do have redemption. Not a potential redemption. He didn't try to redeem some people. We actually have redemption as a result of what Christ did through his blood. And what does that redemption look like? Even the forgiveness of sins. That's what he did for us. He bought us off the slave market of sin. And so sin is no longer an issue for us. Our sins are cast out of God's presence. In whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image, the icon of the invisible God? He is the firstborn of every creature. That word firstborn, by the way, doesn't mean first in time. It doesn't mean he was born first and then everybody else got born. What it means is that he is the preeminent birth. He is the one in stature. He is the primary one, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. By the way, when Paul uses that language, sometimes he's talking about angelic principalities, and sometimes he's talking about satanic principalities and powers. Those also constitute these visible and invisible thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, and those all fall under the category of made by Christ. He made it all. All things were created by him and for him, very importantly. Everything that was created was created by him for the purpose of serving him. And he is before all things. Yes, he had to be before all things. That's how he made everything. And by him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. The same way that he has preeminence as being the preeminent one, born of God, the very son of God. He is also the firstborn of the dead, guaranteeing that all those people who are in him will also rise from the dead. Death has no power over us because we are in Christ who is the firstborn of the dead. Look at the next phrase, that in all things he would have preeminence. That's why he made everything. That's why he's doing what he's doing. That's why the world continues in the way it continues, because everything consists in him, because he made everything. And if it's evil, he made it. And if it's good, he made it. Whatever it is in the whole of creation, he's the creator of it. He's the one that is sovereign over it. He's the one that's going to bring it to its completion. And he did it that way so that in all those things, he would get the preeminence. 
He gets all the honor. He gets all the glory. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. So, Everything that is reconciled to God, since everything is created, and since the whole of creation has been marred by sin, in order to reconcile all things, make them good, righteous, and holy again, and reconcile them to God, Christ is the one. Christ is the mediator, the one who intervened between sinfulness and godliness. And he brings sinful creatures into a reconciled state with an eternally righteous and holy God because only he could do that. And since you can't do that, it's not required of you that you do that. Instead, it's required of you that you react to that, that you live like that, that you walk out your life with the knowledge of that, all the while recognizing you didn't do that. Surely the death of God's own son which paid our redemption price, purchased us off the slave market of sin, justified us before God's righteous standard, and perfected forever those for whom he perished, should never be construed in such a way as to glorify stiff-necked, rebellious, God-hating, dead, and putrefying sinners. All things exist for the glory and the purpose of the Son. And there is no hint anywhere in scripture that he intends to share that absolute preeminence with anybody. He's the one. So now as we're concluding this couple of weeks on particular redemption and trying to get an accurate biblical assessment and understanding of it, the next question has to be, well then can a person resist that salvation If he chooses, I mean, after all, if man does have any extent of free will, then isn't that man going to be able to decide whether that salvation is going to be applied to him? So far, here's what we know. Total depravity. That's your part. That's what you contribute to these doctrines of grace. You're the totally depraved ones. Unconditional election. That's what the Father does. He elected, he chose some people before the foundation of the world. Limited atonement, that's what Christ does. He died for particular people. Starting next week, we will talk about resistible or irresistible grace. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. As I already said this morning, the Holy Spirit seals you. So the only thing you brought to the party was your ugliness, your sin, and your depravity. Everything else that was done on your behalf in order to save you was done by Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the work of the triune God saving people. I like these doctrines because that's what it comes down to. It comes down to the glorification of God alone. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. 
we invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. For weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.